If you're gay, then you're gay. Don't pretend that you're straight. You could be who you are any day of the week. You are unlike the others, so strong and unique. We're all with you. If you're straight, well, that's great. You can help procreate and make gay little babies for the whole human race. Make a world we can live in where the one who you love's not an issue. Thanks for tuning in, and welcome to the November 9th, 2020 Veterans Day edition of IMRU Radio Magazine, the world's longest-running lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender radio show, out front and out loud since 1974. I'm Michael Taylor Gray. Tonight, we revisit some of our best veteran-centered stories and tune in with the queer choir of K-Town, Technical Sergeant Leonard Matlevich was an American Vietnam War veteran, race relations instructor, and recipient of the Purple Heart and the Bronze Star. He was the first gay service member to purposely out himself to the military to fight their ban on gays, and perhaps the best-known openly gay man in America in the 1970s. Matlevich was on the cover of Time in 1975, and in honor of Veterans Day on November 11th, we're going to hop into the IMRU Gayback Machine to revisit our 1978 interview. Hello, I'm Ronald Gold, and this is Gay Alternatives. On March 7, 1975, Technical Sergeant Leonard Matlevich, a 12-year Air Force veteran with three tours of duty in Vietnam, and a fistful of medals for meritorious service, walked into the office of his commanding officer at Langley Air Force Base in Virginia and presented him with a piece of paper. It said that Sergeant Matlevich was formally declaring himself as a homosexual and announced the intention of fighting the automatic discharge that such a declaration was sure to bring. Discharge proceedings were indeed begun, and Sergeant Matlevich's much-publicized appeal is now before a military court. Should he lose in the military, he will take the case to federal court, where, assisted by such organizations as the American Civil Liberties Union and the National Gay Task Force, he hopes to get a ruling that at long last will guarantee the right of gay men and women to serve in the armed forces of the United States. Leonard Matlevich is my guest this evening for a discussion. And Lenny, you come from an Air Force family, don't you? Right. My father spent uh, 32 years in the Air Force. And again, you know, everything that I am and everything I hope to be, I owe to the United States Air Force. I was, I'm serious. I was born on Air Force Base. I graduated from an Air Force High School in England, and all my education has been through the United States Air Force. And once again, what I've done turning myself in, I owe to something connected to the Air Force called Air Force Times Family Magazine. They published an article on homosexuals in uniform, and it was a very inspiring article. Although the article in the beginning said they didn't think gays should stay in the service, it was the most supportive article I have ever read. I remember reading it myself. It was a whole big magazine section that entirely was taken up with descriptions of rather happy uh, situations of gay people who were lovers in the service, and and, uh, all about how uh, the armed services of many other countries uh, had no trouble accommodating gay people in them and so forth and so forth. Wasn't that the case? Exactly. That was a revelation to you, wasn't it? Revelation? Well, it was, yes, but it wasn't because I had already come out. Uh, I already started going to gay bars when the article was out. But it it was my first positive media that I've ever read about homosexuals. I, I, first of all, coming from the Air Force Times, I was floored. I couldn't believe it. So was I when I read it. <laughs> <laughs> and in the article, it mentioned a man by the name of Dr. Frank Kameny. So one night I was just sitting down watching television. I had a brainstorm. Why don't I call Dr. Kameny and just find out exactly what's happening in the gay community? So I called Frank Kameny, for those of you in the audience who don't know, is a pioneer uh, gay liberation person who was uh, the founder of the Mattachine Society of Washington and a 
member of the board of the National Gay Task Force and a person who has pioneered in legal action against uh, discrimination against gay people. And in that article, it mentioned the kind of work that he was doing. Right. So one night I was watching TV, and I brainstormed to call him. I called uh, Long Distance Information in D.C., and I said, I know his name's not going to be listed. I was just shocked when it was. So I was talking to him on the phone. I asked him, I explained my situation. I didn't tell him I was gay, though. I played straight on the phone to him. I told him that... Um, I was a tech sergeant in the Air Force, and I was a race relations instructor, and I talked about homosexuality in the classroom, and I was just interested for my students' sake, not for my sake now, but for my students' sake, what was going on in the gay community, what legal battles were going on. He explained all these things to me, and then I said to him, well, exactly what type of military case are you looking for? And he said, well, we're looking for a military person, man or woman, who is career, who is willing to come forward public and say, yes, I'm gay, but I want to stay in the armed forces. And I said to Dr. Kameny, well, uh, I might have an individual in mind for you. I'll talk to him and find out. Of course, I was talking about myself all this time. And luckily, I, I was stationed in Florida at the time, and luckily the Air Force sent me TDY, which is temporary duty, for two months to Virginia, which was 200 miles from D.C. So during that period of time, was, there was an opportunity for me to get to Washington, D.C. to discuss things with Dr. Kameny, and I met with the ACLU lawyer, David Adelstone, and at the time, they said, this is a big decision on your part, you've got 11 years in, think about it, it took me a year to think about it. Well, tell me some of the things that you uh, thought about during that year. Well, they told me that they thought in order to win, we'd have to go public, and I thought about family. I thought about, well, who's going to hire a faggot? Who's going to hire a queer that's known throughout the country? What type of work I was going to do when I got out? Oh, just millions of things. My straight friends, would I ever have a friend again? How would my gay friends treat me? Would I ever be allowed to go home to my parents again? Would they want me? Just With all of that negative stuff, how did you decide to finally do it? That's a very difficult question. It's, I guess, just my nature that I see something that's wrong and being in the classroom day after day after day, reading Air Force literature that was saying equality for all, uh, one Air Force uh, Air Force regulation in the 30-1 says that those who discriminate by fact or by inference are not fit to command or supervise. I believe this stuff. And the more I read it, the more I believed in it. And I felt as if here I am in the classroom teaching all these things, yet I am being a hypocrite. I felt that there was much more than that for 30 years I lived my life for my parents to make them happy, and I had to start living my life for myself and make me happy. So you just upped and went after that year. Was there some particular incident that made you decide that just suddenly to go, or what happened? Well, not really. It was just um, teaching equality and justice over and over again, and for the black person, for the red person, for women, for every minority you could mention, in that classroom, I was a fire and brimstone teacher, you know, equality and justice for him, equality and justice. But when it came to the gay person, I only went halfway. The more I only went halfway, the more I knew I had to go the full measure all the way. I have no regrets whatsoever. I would do it again and again and again and again. So you went to Washington and you got the got piece the letter, of paper. And I still hadn't made the decision to do it. And I didn't make the decision to do it until I gave it to my supervisor. He, was, he walked into the office, and he was standing, and I said, um, Captain Collins, you should sit down. He said, why? I said, well, I got something I want you to read, and I think you should sit down. Well, he wouldn't sit down, and I handed him the piece of paper, and he read it, and then he said to me, well, what does this mean? First of all, well, the expression, I wish I had a camera just to film his face. It was something else. The expression on his face, his eyes must have got, uh, they were well, big around as footballs he just or baseball he just looked at it he said what does this mean and I said it means uh, Brown versus the Board of Education equality and justice for all and that's the, the court decision on uh, segregated schools are unconstitutional I said this is that I am a race relations instructor and I'm doing my job I see something is wrong it has to be corrected and here we are but they did decide to discharge you, didn't they? Well, I'm not discharged yet. The discharge date has not been set. My squadron commander decided that I should be discharged for the best interest of the Air Force. 
I requested a board hearing. The board will meet on the 16th of September, and a decision will be made then. It will be reviewed by higher authorities. I have very, very little hope of winning whatsoever in the Air Force. I have great hopes of winning in the courts. I just hope, of course, that you win your case well, because I think that discrimination is an abomination. Okay, you're just, right. There's no. I just wonder uh, what the consequences of opening up a bastion of our patriarchal society to the revolutionary uh, potential of gay people will be. And maybe uh, if in a while you've won and you're, you're in it and you've begun to change even more than you have, certainly you've come a very long way in, in two or three years. You're right, and I have a very, very long way to go as a human being. I, I, I'm just on the threshold of something I right now cannot even comprehend that's ahead of me. I have no idea where my mind is going to go from here. Uh, Our time is just about up, and I want to thank you very much for being with me this evening. Believe me, Ron, it was my pleasure. And my guest today was Air Force Sergeant Leonard Matlovich, whose test case will hopefully guarantee the right of gay citizens to serve in any job for which they're qualified, including jobs in the armed services. Sergeant Leonard Philip Matlovich died in 1988 and is buried in the Congressional Cemetery in Washington, D.C. His tombstone reads, Here lies a man who was given a medal for killing two men and a dishonorable discharge for loving one. Ron Nicewaner wrote the screenplays for Swing Shift and Mrs. Sofal and was nominated for the Academy Award for writing Philadelphia. Steve talked to him about his work on the television drama Soldier's Girl, which dealt with his friend Calpurnia Adams and the homicide of her boyfriend, Private Barry Winchell. In the pre-dawn hours of July 5, 1999, inside an infantry barracks at Fort Campbell, Kentucky, 21-year-old Private First Class Barry Winchell was beaten to death with a baseball bat. This horrific murder at the hands of fellow soldiers was the culmination of ongoing harassment that under Don't Ask, Don't Tell, Winchell was unable to report without jeopardizing his military career. A new film called Soldier's Girl recounts Winchell's courtship of transgendered entertainer Calpurnia Adams and the events leading up to his tragic death. The screenplay for this poignant film is by Ron Nicewaner, the man who wrote Philadelphia. There were two murderers, Justin Fisher and Calvin Glover. Justin was the motivator and Calvin was almost, we, we referred to him eventually as the weapon. Do you think a homosexual can be loyal to his unit? No, I, I don't see how a homosexual can be loyal. Because he'd always have this agenda to try and hump you, right? Right. I mean, he'd always be trying to have sex with you and stuff. So you should probably talk to Diaz about it. Okay. Talk to him about what? Well, about having homosexuals in our company. We do? One of the guys in our unit spends a lot of time at this club for deviants. Yeah? And I'm pretty sure that he gave someone fellatio in that club. Well, tell me who it is, because I I can take care of that sort of thing. When you start to look at Justin and Calvin's backgrounds, you look at where they came from, what their family lives were like before they went into the military, what you see is you see two young men of different degrees of sociopathy. Calvin is, is borderline retarded and probably could be manipulated into doing anything. Justin is, as many psychopathic people can be is brilliant and incredibly charming, very manipulative, and I think ultimately really, really, really tortured. And I think it was his deep, 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 deep self-loathing that drove him to help murder Barry Winchell. And also, I think what happened is that Justin found in Barry Winchell someone who accepted him. There was even an incident when Justin and Barry got into a fight in their room, and Justin had picked up a metal dustpan and had beaten Barry in the head with it and caused Barry had to get several stitches. And then they were asked, each were asked individually, after that incident, do you want to separate? And they each said, according to the sergeant who asked the question, no, we like each other. It was just a fight that got out of hand. I saw that as Barry's incredible compassion for everybody around him, and that he had compassion for Justin Fisher, too, and, you know, unfortunately, perhaps he shouldn't have. You know, perhaps if he had had a little less compassion and a little less acceptance, he'd be alive. 
But Soldier's Girl is not just about Barry Winchell's death. It's about his approach to life, and perhaps most of all, it's a love story. My name's Calpurnia Adams. People like to be able to put you in a box and then put you on the shelf and move on, but I think that's why transgender women scare society at large. They're, what does this mean about me if I'm attracted to her? And it's tough, you know, because Barry had only ever dated girls, and he was, as far as I knew, only attracted to women. And I really hesitate at, at calling Barry gay, but since I was pre-operative at the time, a lot of people have their own thoughts about what his sexuality was. Meeting Barry changed my life in that Barry was my first relationship as a woman. He was the first man to just sort of take me at face value as a woman and treat me that way after Barry's murder and all the, the media attention. I felt like I was in a cocoon and somebody had just ripped it open before I was ready and everybody was just like looking at me and saying, you know, she doesn't look that much like a woman or she's not that pretty or what did he see in her? And it was really one more awful thing on top of the whole awful situation to be judged like that before you're ready. One irony of what happened to PFC Winchell is that he loved the military. Barry was Soldier of the Month. He was learning disabled, and yet he carried his manuals with him everywhere and studied all the time. You know, that that stuff is, is really complicated, and he wanted to be a helicopter pilot, so he was studying for a special program above and beyond his regular duties, and he was already, you know, top gun in his company, one of the, the best at his artillery specialty. Barry would sit in my dressing room underneath my rack of clothes and just study his manuals while I would get ready and go on stage and stuff. He, he was so committed, and they really let a good one slip through their fingers by not doing things the way they should have on that base. Faggot, faggot, down the street. Faggot, faggot, down the street. You can't hide your still dead meat. You can't hide your still dead meat. The film is about unconditional love, which I actually think is the most important thing that we can make art about. Screenwriter Ron Neiswanner. There was a point Calpurnia Adams knew was coming in a relationship with Barry, which is that there was a point at which they were going to have to really face the fact that when they got into bed together, there were two penises. And she worried and worried and worried about it. And when finally they face that moment, Barry is full of acceptance. Calpurnia continued past that point to say, you know, I'm going to have the operation someday. And Barry Winchell said, no, don't. You don't need to have this operation. I like you just the way you are. Calpurnia believes that she'll never hear that again. As a matter of fact, she has proceeded with her surgery because she believes that she was never going to meet anyone like Barry who would accept her like that. But to me, that's such an example of complete acceptance and unconditional love. So I'd rather that people take away that example of love. If they can take away more than that, I hope they also get pretty angry about Don't Ask, Don't Tell. The people who created Don't Ask, Don't Tell bear some responsibility for Barry Winchell's death. There is no question in my mind. Gay, straight, or transgendered, the message of Soldier's Girl is universal. There's a whole range of sexuality, and all we really want is to live our lives and be happy and have love, and anybody can empathize with that. In December 1999, 18-year-old Private Calvin Glover was found guilty of murdering PFC Barry Winchell and sentenced to life in prison with the possibility of parole. One month later, Winchell's former friend and roommate, Justin Fisher, 26, was sentenced to 12 and a half years in prison for his involvement in the murder. For more information on Calpurnia Adams, visit her website at calpurnia.com. This is Steve Pride. Thanks for listening. Soldier's Girl is available to screen on the Tubi app or Amazon Prime. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Matilda Stevenson, groundbreaking anthropologist, coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. 
Most of the traditions of the American Indians have been passed down through oral history, including folktales, myths, poems, and songs. Two-spirit people, those whose persona was both male and female, were active contributors to these tribal literatures. A major two-spirit oracle to this literature and certainly the most documented was Wewa of the Zuni tribe. Wewa revealed Zuni myths and tales to anthropologist Matilda Cox Stevenson, who made her first trip to the Southwest in 1879, and afterwards, in the 1880s, continued her yearly visits to further her study of the Zuni tribe. Largely self-taught, Stevenson became the first woman paid as a staff government anthropologist in the late 1890s. Stevenson's work brought to light the life of Wewa, the most famous of the two-spirit people. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Jed Proctor and Brian Burns and recorded at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia, and read by volunteers like me, Tall Feathers. Hi, I'm Amanda Burse, and you're listening to IMRU Radio Magazine, out front and out loud since 1974. Welcome back. I'm Michael Taylor Gray, and you're listening to IMRU Radio. For the next story, we're digging deep into our archive to share a talk Steve had with Rich Merritt about his 2005 book, Secrets of a Gay Marine Porn Star. I'm Rich Merritt, author of my memoir, Secrets of a Gay Marine Porn Star. I started writing the book after a suicide attempt. My life had kind of spiraled downward and it was an attempt to figure out why I had done it and to make sure I didn't do it again. And I sent sample chapters out to friends and they suggested I get it published. And so I looked into that and here we are. Rich Merritt has always had a problem with low self-esteem. Being raised a fundamentalist Christian didn't help. Neither did attending Bob Jones Elementary School, Junior High, High School, and Bob Jones University. Remember, the founder of these institutions once said all homosexuals should be stoned to death. It's a very nice-looking place, but as I grew up and hit puberty and started thinking and feeling differently inside, that's when the problem started to arise. But I wasn't consciously dealing with any of this because it had already been programmed in me not to question authority and not to question what I was being taught. To do so is rebellious, only a reprobate or incorrigible person does that. So I just accepted it. Ironically, it was in the Marines that Captain Rich Merritt got to know other gay men, because despite the lack of a welcome mat, there are lots and lots of gay men and lesbians in the military. There always has been, and there always will be, especially when you take an 18-year-old who hasn't dealt with this issue at all many times. A lot of times you talk to guys and women in their late 20s who are gay and in the military, and they'll say when they joined, they didn't admit to themselves they were gay similar to my story. I think the military tends to recruit people who are looking for something to prove. They're trying to prove their manhood. They're trying to prove that they are good enough. And they end up with a pretty high percentage of gays and lesbians, I think. There are two parts to the military's gay issue. One is the declaration that I'm a gay. And the other is the act of sodomy, which is a violation of Article 123 of the Uniform Code of Military Justice. Violating that article is a punishable offense by court-martial. And you can get a dishonorable discharge, you can get a bad conduct discharge, you can go to the brig for up to a year, and if it's aggravated sodomy, such as being on film or for money or in public, you can get up to three years per occurrence. However, the Queen for a Day Clause, if you're caught for whatever reason violating Article 123, you can say, I'm not gay, and I was drunk, and this just happened, and you can get away with it once. Whereas there's no such exception for the Declaration of Homosexuality. If you just declare that you're gay, then you're looking at an administrative general discharge under honorable conditions or under other than honorable, depending on how they want to prosecute you. Um, So I think that's interesting. You can actually have gay sex and still stay in the military, but once you say you're gay, you're out for good. If you're drunk or you just wanted to try it once to see what it was like and you realized after doing it that you're not gay and you're not going to do it again, mainly the element, I think, is to say that you're not going to do it again, you can get away with it once. The title of Rich's book is not Secrets of a Gay Marine. It's Secrets of a Gay Marine Porn Star. There's out of uniform and there's out of uniform. I asked him why he did it. There were a lot of reasons, but to put it succinctly, I was acting out. Don't Ask, Don't Tell had just been passed in late 93, and I had been at sea for six months in 94. Uh, The whole country went Republican at the end of the year, and we knew it was going to be forever before Don't Ask, Don't Tell was lifted, which it still hasn't been. 
12 years later. Um, you know, I can't write my congressman and complain about don't ask, don't tell. I can't really march in a parade. The policy itself requires you to be secretive. And so when you don't deal with something, your mind finds a way to deal with it. And with me, it was a way to act out. Not only am I going to be gay, which you say is incompatible with military service, I'm going to be as gay as I can be for the whole world to see it. And I'm always in need of validation. That's just something that I've had to learn to provide for myself. But at the time, porn was a way of saying, look, I've got cash to prove that someone thinks I'm attractive. Shortly before leaving the Marines, Merritt was profiled in New York Times Magazine. His name was not mentioned, but the article about gays in the military was detailed enough to point in his direction. I was approached even before I got out of the Marines by a freelance writer who thought he could get an article revealing my identity into the gay press somewhere. Only after I was completely out of the Marines would I do this story. And so we waited until I was out, and that's when we did it. And I revealed my name to the advocate the first time. A reader called and said, you know who this is? He's been in pornographic videos under the name of Danny Orlis. The first time I was on page 58 or 60, something like that, and I was on the cover six weeks later, the Marine who did gay porn. The first time I ever went to a circuit party where I used ecstasy was six weeks later. I think it was just the fact that I was out of the Marines and I wasn't getting drug tested all the time. Plus, I needed to feel good. I needed to feel good fast. But it didn't lead to anything approaching happiness. My partner found me in the garage with the car running, and he called the police, and he called an ambulance. And California, where we were living, has a mandatory 72-hour suicide watch, and I was taken to a mental health facility for that. And that's why I tongue-in-cheek call myself mental patient. But I was, so it's not so tongue-in-cheek. Secrets told, clean and sober. How is Rich Merritt doing these days? I'm fine today. Um, going through all of that three years ago, it sounds cliche, and someone told me this at the time, well, think how much stronger you'll be when you go through all this, and I wanted to kick them, uh, kick them. <laughs> but they were right. Going through all of this internal stuff, dealing with it, getting sober, finding the right medication, and you know, if someone has a heart problem, they take medication. If they have high cholesterol, they take medication. If someone has chronic depression, there's now medication available for them. And that's what I do. I view it as a three-pronged attack, sobriety, therapy, and medication. What's next for me, I don't know exactly, and that's part of the beauty of it. I've been very happy with the way things have gone recently, and if I keep putting forth the energy and the effort and the hard work, I don't see why good things won't continue to happen. I'm much happier now than I've ever been. Rich Merritt is no longer a Marine or a porn star. Now the label reads, Gay Atlanta Attorney. Although he was fired by his law firm when the partners read the galleys of his book, he has no regrets about the decision to share his story, because he's had enough of Don't Ask, Don't Tell to last a lifetime. Secrets of a Gay Marine Porn Star is from Kensington Press. This is Steve Pride. Thanks for listening. From the halls of Montezuma To the shores of Tripoli I have fought my country's battles I have faced every enemy I ain't scared of no Iraqi missiles I ain't scared of no Russian tanks If I'm captured and tortured All they'll get is my serial number, name and rank You know I'd storm Baghdad to kick Saddam's butt Swim to Havana, bring home Castro's beard For my buddies, throw my body on a live grenade Yes, I just don't know the meaning of fear, but please, 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 please don't make me shower with a fairy. These days, Rich is a lawyer and lives in Piedmont, South Carolina. Now, for a change of pace, we offer up the sounds of protest for these unprecedented times from the queer choir of K-Town. The choir is made up of Los Angeles-based LGBTQI activists, members of the Trans Course of Los Angeles, members of the Los Angeles Eco Village, and a veteran freedom writer of Freedom Summer 1964. City Council, listen up. Hallelujah. Move to deep on Hallelujah. Michael Roy of Bonashore. Hallelujah.
National Coming Out Day took on new meaning this year. Providing the soundtrack for these critical times is the Queer Choir of K-Town, founded by songstress and activist Ellery Alice. How did the Queer Choir of K-Town come to be? The genesis of the project was that I had made a playlist for my father for Father's Day. The playlist that I made, essentially, it takes you through Freedom Summer 1964 from the planning stages of Freedom Summer through the end of the summer. I curated it so that it takes you on that journey. I had put it together along with a field guide explaining the history of each song for my dad for Father's Day because my dad was a freedom writer with the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee in the summer of 1964 and has continued to love and sing these freedom songs throughout his life, which is why I grew up with them. I made this playlist for him and I was listening to it a lot myself. And I was on my way home from a protest at the Grove in the aftermath of the murders of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. This protest had erupted into a a really horrific scene of police brutality. I was in a crowd that had been shot at with rubber bullets and tear gas. Tell us about your queer choir of K-Town anthem and the iconic artist and activist who inspired it. I was listening to the playlist to Harry Belafonte's civil rights version of Michael Rowe, the Boat Ashore. Harry Belafonte, who was a legendary civil rights activist, as well as obviously he's an incredible musician, his song has these civil rights-specific verses. And the one that always really gets me is this verse where he goes, Mississippi, kneel and pray, hallelujah. Hallelujah. He released this song in 1962, and he's talking about the first Freedom Ride in 1961 when he sings about the buses coming to Mississippi. Feeling shaken up myself by the, the scene that I'd been at at the Grove, went home and by impulsively rewriting the lyrics. Then I shared the song with two of my neighbors, Rebecca Luizel and Jordan Balagot. They are artists. Jordan is a composer and a musician, and Becca is a filmmaker. They're also both members of the Trans Chorus of Los Angeles, so they have some choir experience that they bring with them. We came up with this idea of recording the song and making a music video, so Jordan became our choir director and arranger, and Becca became our music video director. Then we collected friends of ours, all All of the people in the choir are LGBTQIA activists. And then my dad is also in the choir, the 78-year-old veteran freedom writer of Freedom Summer 1964. We put this choir together and we got a camera crew, sound crew, and we made a music video. The thing that I did after talking, immediately after talking to Jordan and Becca, my next step was that I tracked down Gina Belafonte, Harry Belafonte's daughter and sent her a demo version of my song, and she responded, and she's reposted the video since I released it, which has meant a lot to me to feel like I've had her stamp of approval, and by proxy, perhaps Harry Belafonte's. How do you identify within the LGBTQI plus community? I feel like I'm somewhere on the spectrum between non-binary and a cis woman. I feel pretty gender fluid, but I primarily default to she, her pronouns. And I also use they, them pronouns. Probably the most accurate term for my sexuality is pansexual. I identify as bisexual. Tell us more about the diverse groups and individuals who together form the Queer Choir of K-Town. The Queer Choir of K-Town is made up of LGBTQIA plus activists. A couple of the members of the Trans Course of Los Angeles are featured vocalists in the project. Uh, a couple members of Los Angeles Eco Village are in the choir. Our featured vocalist, Miss Barbecue, who is a legendary trans femme, non binary, gender non conforming activist and performance artist in LA, and also a member of the Trans Chorus of Los Angeles. There's also Abdullah Rasheen Hall, also known as Abby, who is the artistic director of the Trans Chorus of Los Angeles, very passionate about 
uplifting trans, gender nonconforming, and non-binary youth. It was such a joy to have them and have their voices on this project. This is Michael Taylor Gray, and you're listening to my interview with founder of the Queer Choir of K-Town, Ellery Alice. What do you wish to accomplish with this choir at this particular time? The mission of the Queer Choir of K-Town is to honor the legacy of protest music as a form of resistance and a tool for movement building. We're singing songs in the tradition of the freedom songs of the civil rights movement and also the union songs of the American labor movement, as well as many protest music traditions around the world. How does music and song help illuminate and educate within and beyond our community? I think that there's a lot of power in using the vehicle of a song with legacy and history to talk about the current moment. It breathes current political energy into the songs. As you're singing songs with history like that, you're sort of calling on the generations that have sung the song before and used it as a tool for movement building and social change and resistance and rebellion and liberation. And you're keeping the songs alive. Bernice Reagan Johnson, who was one of the original singers of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee's vocal group, the Freedom Singers, she says, freedom songs are documents created by a collective voice. Music totally has the potential to illuminate and educate. And you saw that with the freedom singers who toured the United States singing about the voting rights movement. The freedom singers toured the United States singing about what was going on in the South with voter registration. Their songs and their tour was the vehicle for educating a lot of the rest of the country about what was going on. There is this history of music being very functionally educational in that way. If you choose to write lyrics that are relevant to what people are going through. Were there lyrics that you weren't able to include in the final track of your version of Michael Rowe, The Boat Ashore? Honestly, this song came out in one go. It was just that night that I came back and I wrote these lyrics and that's what ended up being the final version of the song. K-Town's Michael Rowe, The Boat Ashore is available on Spotify, iTunes, Apple Music, Amazon Music, and most other streaming services. The video is on Facebook, it's on YouTube, it's on our Instagram, and it's clips of it on our Twitter as well. The handles for our Instagram and Twitter are Queer Choir of K-Town. QueerChoirOfKTown.com is our website. 
The queer choir of K-Town may have originated in K-Town, a.k.a. Koreatown, but its members are spread across Los Angeles. It sings to honor the legacy of protest music as a form of resistance and a tool for movement building. The birth of Wewa, coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. The Zuni tribe honored its people with traits of both genders. The most documented of these two-spirit people was Wewa, who anthropologist Matilda Stevenson described as the strongest character and the most intelligent of the Zuni tribe. Wewa was born in 1849 near the area that became the border of New Mexico and Arizona. When Wewa was four, both parents died of smallpox, a disease brought by American immigrants passing through the area. Adopted by his father's sister, Wewa maintained ceremonial ties to his mother's clan. As a strong, bright boy, he preferred the company of women in the tribe, ultimately doing women's work and wearing women's clothes while continuing to excel in hunting and riding. Along with three others in the tribe, he was known and honored as Yamana, one embodying two spirits. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns and recorded at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia, and read by volunteers like me, Tall Feathers. Hi, I'm Chaz Bono, and you're listening to IMRU Radio Magazine, out loud and proud since 1974. Welcome back. I'm Michael Taylor Gray. In 2014, Steve Pride found himself in the backyard of a house in Santa Monica to meet the vacationing SEAL Team 6 hero of the documentary Lady Valor, The Kristen Beck Story. Here is his report. Christopher Beck was a Navy SEAL, a hero, a self-described angry bearded Viking who hid her transgender status for 20 years in the Navy, finally coming out in 2013 and embracing her truth as a woman named Kristen. I grew up in a very conservative family, Christian, with five kids. I have three sisters and one brother on a farm with a bunch of horses and things, and, and my father made a comment that I was all boy growing up, and that was uh, something that I, I agree with. You know, I was all boy. But there was always that other part of me that was being suppressed, I guess, because of society's wishes or being forced on me. And I think probably before grade school, I knew that I was different. But growing up in the 60s and 70s, there's no Internet and there's no information out there that I could find. So there was no word applied to it, and I thought I was totally alone. So I isolated. I kept it all to myself. Didn't speak about it to anyone. Didn't really think about it. I knew it was there. My older sister, I used to borrow a lot of her clothes. She never caught me. I was always really super sneaky about it, placing everything exactly. So I got very detail-orientated, and that might have helped me in my military career also. But uh, I never even dreamt about saying any of this stuff to my parents especially. I just suppressed it. I just lived as Christopher. I did let it slip out to my sisters, and I let them in on this secret that I had. I was in high school, I think. Kind of kept it at that level, just a couple of my sisters. My brother, I never talked about it because he was like that macho, really cool football quarterback brother. So I think he would have freaked out. But maybe not. I don't know. Those assumptions are tough to juggle. You got married and had kids. The uh, white picket fence, having a house and wife and kids, it's so ingrained into our thought process, I think, in society that I think it also applies to the uh, LGB part of our community that we're so ingrained with the idea that this is what success is, this is what normal, and I'm doing those air quotes again, normal, which one of those words that I can't stand, I don't think there is such thing as normal. But so ingrained in all of our thought processes in society that that's what I did. I ended up getting married and having kids and doing a white picket fence and everything else. And at that time, I didn't like myself. If I don't like myself, how do I love other people? I've come to some of the terms with all of that. I would be a lot better. If I got married right now, I'd probably be a lot more successful at it. I'm looking at the world a whole lot differently. I look at myself a whole lot more differently now. So I wish I could go back in time and talk to that person. <laughs> you became a Navy SEAL. I was a Navy SEAL for 20 years. I joined in uh, 1990 in response to uh, Desert Shield, Desert Storm. I went through SEAL Team training in uh, 91 and was at SEAL Team 1 for a long time. I ended up doing 13 deployments. Seven of those deployments were in combat. I searched it out, the toughest of the tough, and then I went on from there to find even the toughest missions. 
being transgender or being two-spirited didn't force me to do anything different. I am what I am. Going into Navy SEALs was a big part of who I am. I'm a sheepdog, you know. There are wolves in this world. There is bad stuff going on, and you need folks out there defending equality and defending the right, you know, the, the righteousness of, of people. So when those bad people pop up, you're going to need some people to try to defend and fight. I am one of those fighters. You weren't just in the military. You were in one of its most elite units. What drove you? Even as a kid, I was driven. In the SEALs, I was driven, and I graduated atop my buds class. I was the fastest swimmer, fastest runner, and the fastest overall as far as the physical proudness goes because I drove myself. You know, I wasn't always born with those natural talents. I think my brother was definitely physically gifted a little better than I was for sports-wise, but I worked harder at it. I'd be out there running and uh, practicing and throwing the ball and swimming more and just practice, practice, practice. So through perseverance, blood, sweat, and tears, I became the top of that heap. You kept your secret from your military band of brothers. I kept the secret from just about everyone in the SEAL teams. I mentioned it to one of my SEAL team buddies. It was uh, one of my real old friends that I went through a lot of training with right in the beginning. His name is Mike. He lived on a boat just around from uh, where I lived on a boat. It was sailboats in, uh, in the middle of the San Diego Harbor. One night I went over there, you know, I was doing a little bit of drinking, and I had on a dress and a wig and all that stuff. I rode my little boat over to his boat, and I uh, called up to him and said, Hey, Mike, I got a six-pack of beer. Do you want to drink a beer? He was like, Yeah, sure, come on board. Oh, by the way, nice dress. So it was, it was kind of good humor. And then we spoke for a while, and he says, Hey, I was born in California, you know, super open-minded. My parents are kind of hippies. I can dig what you're coming from. It's all right with me, but uh, don't ever do this in front of anyone else. You'll be kicked out, beat up, whatever's going to happen, but it's not going to be good. So don't do this ever again. And so I kept that secret from everyone. You know, he was the only one that knew in the SEAL teams throughout my entire 20-year career. I was super afraid telling anyone, even up until just a couple of years ago when I first came out. It was huge amounts of fear when I first left the house. It was, uh, I mean, people lose their lives every week. Every week there is one transgender person killed in America, and that's just terrible. And so there is a lot of fear in the community for our safety and for our lives. That's one of the things I don't think that the LGB part of the community, I'm not really sure they really understand that. Because when you're transgender, you know, I mean, you're walking down the street, me walking down the street, I would have a dress on or a skirt or whatever. And all anyone sees when they look at me is they see the dude in a dress. And that's not what I am. I might look a little masculine, but I'm not a dude in a dress. And I'm not making believe, and this is not something that you joke about. If you're part of the LGB community, you can be on the street, you can be anywhere you want, any walk of life, and it's not on your sleeve. You're not wearing it right there out so openly. Unless you want to, you can choose not to, though. And I think that there are still a lot of people that try to hide it as much as possible. And even amongst the transgender community, the only way we can hide it is to not do it. You know, just to, in your own home and in privacy, you can uh, put something on and try to feel comfortable in your own skin, but you can't go on the street. The only safety we have is stealth. You have to hide in your house or you have to be so good at portraying yourself in the gender that you're comfortable in. You have to be so good at it that you can just blend in and be natural. We're targets. We're always targets. I'm a target. When I was in Tampa, I was walking down the street. I had an outfit on, nothing special, nothing flamboyant, nothing crazy. It was just me just being myself, Kristen, walking down the street. I uh, had four gentlemen walking towards me. I scooted between them because it was kind of a smaller sidewalk. Excuse me, I got past them. And then a couple of seconds after, one of them come up from behind me pretty quick and punched me in the back of the head super hard and knocked me right on my feet. As he was punching me, he's yelling, fag. So it was like, fag, boom. I was knocked out and I'm laying on the ground. And uh, the next thing I know, I'm waking up. And when I'm waking up, all four of them are kicking me. And uh, they're stomping me. So one dude is kicking me in the face. Another guy is kicking me in the chest area and that in my arms. And then the other two guys were down a little lower. So he's kicking me in my private areas, and they were trying to hurt me pretty bad. And they did. It was hard to walk for a while after that. I had a real difficult time. Talk about the distance between Chris Beck, the angry bearded Viking, and your true self, Kristen Beck. The angry bearded Viking. That was the person coming back from war. That was a person that was having a difficult transition from military to civilian. And you have to understand, it's pretty traumatic. Going from a war zone 
in firefights, and then a day or two days later, you're sitting there with a huge welcome home sign in your house and your kids. Everybody's trying to be all happy and they're giving you hugs and all that. But a, a day earlier, I was in a war zone. You know, I was in combat in firefights. So how do you make that transition? And so it was definitely difficult for me to do that. And back in those days, there was no welcome home wagons. There was no, there was no therapy or anything. They just, they just stick you on an airplane and fly you back home, and you jump on a bus, and the next thing you're home. So like I said, it was two days after a firefight. I'm sitting there talking to my wife and kids, and it was pretty traumatic. I didn't really handle that very well. So the distance from that person to who I am right now, it's quite a big distance, but it has nothing to do with gender, has nothing to do with my journey right now. It has to do with me understanding who I was during that war, what I was doing and what we were fighting for, and then trying to come back here to America and just being a civilian, you know. One of my SEAL team buddies mentioned that he likes Kristen a lot better than he likes Chris. But you have to understand the timing. I was in the SEAL teams. I was the chief. I had a lot of responsibility, and I was pretty intense. So when you're in charge, sometimes you just get so caught up in just that command and control that sometimes you don't really act like a human being. I'm a lot better now, I think, as far as my balance, my own happiness. And so because I'm happy and I like myself, I'm able to also pass it on to other people. And I think that a lot of us have that control, and we kind of lose it. There's a ton that we do, I think, to each other that it's kind of a reflection of how we think about ourselves. I'm giving myself a break now. I'm being nicer to myself so I can be nicer to everybody else. I've noticed you have no problems with pictures of you before you transitioned. There's a lot of people in the transgender community that they see their previous self as something that's not them. And once they transition or once they change genders, and it could be any one of the various steps through that, just having longer hair or starting to wear makeup and the clothing change and all that. But I see all that as just outward. And so myself personally, that person that I was before, Christopher, and that angry bearded Viking, that's still me. You know, it's 100% me. And this is the vessel that my soul inhabits right now. How can I deny the fact that that was also me? I am who I am right now because of who I was before. For me to totally deny that and not to look at those photos and go, yeah, that was me. And I've learned a lot since then. Why would you want to cut out your entire lifetime that you had before this? I don't really totally understand that. I'm not denying that person. And I hold that person in my heart. And that is me. And now you see Kristen, Lady Valor, and all that. This is still me. So both sides of that coin, it is one vessel holding on to those two spirits. What's the biggest misconception about Kristen Beck? That I've changed since being Christopher, senior chief, Navy SEAL. I haven't changed. So you see all these outward changes, and you see me wearing a different outfit, or you see a little bit of makeup, my hair is a little bit longer. These are just minor differences. So that soul, that person, my intellect, my mental capacity, my ability to be a Navy SEAL, to be an American, to be a patriot, all of that is 100% the same person. So the misconception is that I've changed. I haven't changed a bit. I'm still me. Your journey was chronicled in the award-winning CNN documentary, Lady Valor. What do you hope people take away from your story? The fact that Human beings are dynamic. We are changing. We are fluid. We are gray. We are not Conan. We are not Barbie. We are not binary. You can't put labels on it. We can be anything we want to be is put our mind to it. The universe has no limits on what we could do, yet we continually put these labels, yet we continue to limit ourselves. We continue to beat each other up over these minor differences. We continue to crush each other trying to fit us into these little boxes and that's one of the biggest problems we have with right now with humanity if we could open up our minds just a little bit and understand how amazing humanity really is i think we would have a way better life on earth i think that we could grow as humanity and become something special and i think that's what i want to do i want my soul to flourish and i want it to flourish however it needs to flourish, and that would be part of this journey. Part of the journey for me is this gender journey. Even the film and trying to open up other people's minds, that is part of my journey, and I'm going to accomplish that. The next chapter in your amazing journey is a run to represent your home district in Maryland in the U.S. Congress. Why? I saw things going on in our government that I don't agree with. We're turning it into a nation of hate because we're so polarized. 
with these issues that just doesn't make any sense where we're going right now. And so I think that we need some people up there in Congress with some common sense that have served in other capacities. I'm not a professional politician. I think there's too many professional politicians up there. I think they lost the fact that they are there to serve the people, that they're not there to get a paycheck and be professional politicians. I would love to see those guys that are there for their 10 or 12 years. You need to go back and live under the laws that you just put in effect. Most of them don't. I think they've been bought and paid for. I think that they're moving our country in a direction one way or the other, and uh, it's going to put us off the tracks, you know, and we need to bring it back in. And that's what I want to do. So when I saw all these issues going on, I had to act. I'm going to step up. So I see problems. I step up and I do something. I'm not just going to talk about it. I'm going to be actively in the fight. I want to make a difference. You know, I love my country and I love being one of the people and I will always be one of the people. I'm going to fight for the people because that's what I am. We label our movement LGBT, but forget that sometimes there's a huge divide between issues of sexuality and issues of gender. Everybody kind of delineates the fact that LGB is one part of the community and then the T is a whole separate part. And I think we could say the T and the Q, the uh, questionnaire, the queer side of our community, is uh, kind of off on our own because the LG actually started out with just the G. We're uh, such a powerful force in this movement and pretty much on our own. They saw themselves as separate from everybody else. I still think to this day that there is a lot of separation inside of our community between the LGB and the T. And just recently has the rest of the community even reached out to the transgender part of our community and uh, understood that we are part of the community, even though we're so different, even though that we are separated because one part of the community is all about sexuality and sexual orientation, and another part of the community is about gender and about their self-identity. But I still think it's all the same, because when you really look at it, it's about freedom. It's about equality. It's about a disenfranchised and a, and a crushed part of society that have all banded together to uh, defend ourselves. When we realize that, how close we are together, don't even talk about the sexuality part. Don't talk about the gender part. Don't talk about any of that stuff. Just talk about a community, a diverse community that can all come together and work as one and work as a team to try to bring that equality, understanding, and open-mindedness to an entire nation. And that's what I would like to concentrate on. It's not about civil rights. It's not about sexual orientation rights. It's not about marriage equality. It's not about gender expression and gender identity and all that stuff. It's not about any of that stuff. It's not about civil rights. It's about human rights. And when we all come together and we realize that, that diversity flag is not about sex or gender or anything else that we keep applying it to. It's about diversity and it's about pride. It's about us coming together from all different walks of life and coming together for a common cause, and a common cause is human rights. This has been a conversation with Kristen Beck, a hero in so many ways. And this is Steve Pride. Thanks for listening. Beck served in the U.S. Navy for 20 years and was the first openly transgender former U.S. Navy SEAL. In 2017, President Donald Trump said, I think I'm doing the military a great favor by banning trans military members. Okay, that's it for tonight. I'm Michael Taylor Gray. Our thanks to IMRU's executive producer, Steve Pride, and Rainbow Minute producers, Judd Proctor and Brian Burns. Please follow us on Facebook at IMRU Radio, and if you are interested in volunteering with IMRU in any capacity, email volunteer at imruradio.org. And a reminder, we're a global podcast as well as a show broadcast by the station. You can always hear our weekly show posted to kpfk.org. Also catch us at iTunes, Spotify, Breaker, Anchor.fm, CastBox, and Pocket Casts. Have a happy Veterans Day and a good night. My mama told me when I was young, we are all born superstars. She wrote ahead and put her lipstick on In the glass of her boudoir There's nothing wrong with loving who you are She said, cause it made you perfect, babe So hold your head up, boy, and you'll go far 
Listen to me when I say No matter gays, fed or bi Lesbian, tragic life I'm on the right track, baby I was born to survive No matter black, white or beige Your love or made I'm on the right track, baby I was born to be brave